unceded and occupied homelands of the Musqueam. This is Patchworks. Across intersections and oceans, we hope to offer you a collection of stories about emerging and established leaders working to make change in their communities. Today I am joined by fashion curator Jason Cyrus. Jason, can you tell us a bit about yourself? My name is Jason Cyrus. My pronouns are he, him. And I am a fashion curator who looks at questions of identity, cultural exchange, and agency through the lens of fashion. As someone who's queer and Guyanese-Canadian, I center marginalized identities in my work as a way of advancing decolonization. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to sit down with me. Now that you've spent a little time introducing yourself for our listeners, I will ask you my first question. Throughout the course of your professional and academic work, you look at clothing through many lenses. As a fashion merchandiser over many years, as an art historian telling stories of dyed textiles, furs, and fabric painted in portraits and scenes that could not exist without global supply chains made possible by enslavement and the colonization of the New World, as a curator assembling exhibitions that open up dialogue between histories of marginalization and relationships to dress. Can you walk us through what this journey has been like for you? What led you to shift how you focus on clothing? That's an excellent question, Rodney. Um, the best way I can articulate that is probably to give a bit longer summary of my experience, just to show the ways that my roles over the past 15 years have informed each other as well as have given me the skill sets to be able to do what I do. As you mentioned, I started out as a fashion merchandiser before transitioning into marketing and branding and then into curation. And I like to joke that the event planner, the merchandiser, and the curator all do versions of the same job. The Ethos of which being to create an experience that guides an audience through a physical or digital space and then for them to take something away from that. The event planner does that on a much shorter timeline. It's normally for a day or if it's a festival or a few days. But the point is for a number of folks to come through, to spend time in a space and to be immersed in an experience and that could be around something that's personal, like a birthday, or to launch a product that's more commercial. But at the end of that experience, there must be some type of takeaway, whether it be understanding the launch of something new or whether it be a celebration of life. The fashion merchandiser has a similar way of thinking. They create a space whereby they can set up a series of elements, whether it be clothing, whether it be props, display cases, paint, colors, whatever it is they need to do to create an immersive environment that can do many things. On one hand, it shares the quote-unquote trends of the season. It can share what the designer's thoughts for that collection would have been, what their 
in their mood board, in their imaginative space, what they were thinking when they created this collection. At the same point in time, from a very analytical perspective, the merchandiser must also not just reflect the goals of um, the companies in terms of sales, they must also reflect uh, a hyper-local client. So if the person walking in the door in the store or the person shopping online to that local market prefers certain colors or certain cuts in a given collection, it's their job to emphasize what's reflected based on the business. And the curator, the institutional curator, in a sense does something similar where they're creating a space, and I'm going to use the word uh, immersive quite often because the whole, the whole point of this is to bring the person walking through an experience into a way of going through a space where none of these things are actually obvious, where the tools of the trade, as we say, are not in front of your face, but you are so taken back by what it is you're seeing, you're feeling, you are looking at, you're reading. So really good fashion curators will take you into a space in will lead you through the space of the gallery. You will interact with clothing, you'll interact with the context from which the clothing came through. There is a thesis or there is a point or a narrative that the curator is trying to share. And of course, it's a whole team that brings these exhibitions together. But at the end of the day, the museum goer or the gallery goer must leave that exhibition with some kernel of thought that the curator wanted to share. And it's a way, it's the same, if we take it back to merchandising, we take it back to event planning, it's all the same. It's just the frameworks they play in are different. Um, And of course, because of the way that our colonial way of thinking of institutions and commerce are split. Uh, one is seen as, um, you know, of course, the training is different, but the, it's it's very historically has been split between what is considered institutional, what is considered commercial, and what is considered something that is on a more personal bent if it's an event or so on. But What I love that I think I've experienced over my career is that those worlds are all blending and they have blended for some time. You cannot exit a museum, uh, any major museum show without exiting through the gallery shop, without exiting through the retail space. Exhibitions that I've been hugely impacted by have been exhibitions that have actually taken me into a very immersive, almost event planning-like way of setting up a space where I'm in the designer's mind, I'm in their thoughts, I can understand how they created a garment. At the same point in time, department stores, independent boutiques, many retail spaces are starting to dabble in curation themselves, where there will be pop-ups of garments set up either in a curatorial manner with a didactic label that explains the clothing, a setup that mirrors the White Cube Museum space. For example, there are hotel lobbies of luxury chains like the Shangri-La in Toronto and the Pacific Rim here that just off of their lobby have a series of display cases and they're displaying garments that have come from the Met, Costume Institute. And there's a third party person who curates that collection. But these garments have labels. They are garments that would have been shown in shows at the Costume Institute and other places. And there that is right not far off from the lobby bar, not far off from the checking desk. So it's becoming this beautiful way of seeing everything mixed. And I think for me, my challenge was going through different versions of these experiences and knowing that 
there was a connective element to them, but not understanding what that meant for my own world. As I mentioned, as someone who is queer and someone who is mixed race, black and Guyanese Canadian, I always wanted to see myself reflected, always wanted to see my stories reflected. And I also wanted to be able to interact with these stories in a tangible way which is why the visual medium is mine, which is why curation is something that I'm so passionate about. And to be able to set garments up and to be able to work with conservators and work with interpretive planners and to be able to work with installers and artists, to be able to share stories that move me and I hope will move other people in terms of the connectedness of our histories has been something that's always been a part of my own lens. What I love is that my career in fashion merchandising and marketing have given me the practical skills to be able to do that, to be able to understand juxtaposition of garments, to be able to understand how lighting works, to be able to understand how you, in a very tight space or sometimes large spaces or awkward spaces, can guide someone from point A to point B to point C and understand sight lines, understand um a way of focusing and my art historical um, my art historical training uh, through my undergrad and my master's and my upcoming PhD has given me the the theoretical heft to ground um, that practical um, that practical way of implementing the shows. So I'm very fortunate that I can finally come full circle because I spent a lot of my professional life being quite frustrated because I was interested in what I was doing, but I always knew there was something more. There was always a layer that I had not unpacked, that I had not unraveled. And I love that in the medium of fashion curation, I can bring all my skill sets finally to bear. And in regards to the materiality of clothing itself, that's also been a through thread in my career. I remembered times, whether it be at Gucci or at Old Renfrew or when I was doing larger work for Dan Republic, where I would be unboxing things and looking at garments. And as I began to interact with more and more designer labels and um, runway pieces, I remembered with my colleagues opening up specific gowns or tailored pieces and really focusing on the threads, on the cut, on the construction. And from having a personal interest in fashion as well, in terms of following the industry, following designers, following conversations on being eco-conscious on um, both from the natural world as well as in the human world in terms of uh, workers' rights and many things, and bringing all those conversations to bear in my own thought process and how I interacted with garments. And this, I think, is probably the biggest connection between, as well as practical skill sets. I always was interested in what went into making this garment, what went into creating a show in which the garment was seen in a specific way that when it came down to for them to explaining what they would like to do to a merchandiser, and then for us to then take their thoughts and put that into a physical space where the consumer or the customer or the shopper was immersed in that retail environment, I was really interested in what went into that whole thought process. 
both on the garment level as well as the bigger picture of the making of it, of the inspiration of and so on. And that's very much connected to my work because presently I'm working on a project that allows me to really unpack in many ways the how the materiality of a garment and its very existence has led to the very way of life we have today. And I'm very interested in what systems went into bringing that to bear. And I think whenever I read profiles on um, designers or creatives or artists or anyone that I admire, I'm always interested in what makes them tick, what interests them, what allows them to see the world in the way that they see the world. And when you can articulate that clearly, I find is when some learning can happen for me. So thinking a little bit about your description of the process of curation, the roles the different elements play, lighting, space, arrangement of clothing, based on your experience of, you know, you mentioned um, reflecting on some of the exhibitions you've gone to in the past that have, a, that have had an impact on you, and also your role in developing exhibitions now as a, as a curator. What do you think ineffective curation looks like? And also, what does it feel like? Ooh, that is a big one. Whew. I can tell you of times when I've been deeply impacted by shows, but the shows that I, exhibitions that I have seen that have really made an impact on me are ones where, as I was describing earlier, I'm not aware of the 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 machine that's working to bring it all into play. I'm not aware of, I'm actually not aware of the lighting and the, the in a sense, um, scenography of putting it together. I am more focused on the experience that I'm having as I'm going through. And then afterwards, I can go back and think through the elements think through my experience, what I was feeling, what I was taking in, and then pay attention to the minutiae of lighting, of placement, of wordplay, of juxtaposition. There have been shows I've gone to see quite recently, actually, at major institutions where I leave thinking, what was that about? Sure, I mean, we saw fantastic things, but what does this have to do with the way that we live our lives today? What does this have to do with the history of how the world has come into being? And one show, I think, for me that I always come back to as a um, a seminal experience in my life, as many folks who are interested in this field, is Alexander McQueen's Savage Beauty at the Costume Institute of the Met, I believe in 2012 or 2011. I think it's 2012. Um, No, 2011 where I went through that show and as someone who had been following the career of Lee Alexander McQueen for many, many years, someone also who had been following Andrew Bolton's career, who's the curator of the Costume Institute at the Met, which is the arm of the Met that takes care of the clothing um, in relation to gowns and tailoring and many different historic pieces. It's also where we get the Met Gala, the Met Gala being the fundraising event every year to fundraise for the next year's exhibition. But I remembered going through the Savage Beauty show and just being completely and totally in awe of my experience. And hopefully I can articulate this well because it's still quite emotional for me. But I felt like I was in 
Lee's mind. I felt like I understood even much more so his genius, his pain, his joy, you know, the big picture things he would look at in terms of the way he saw beauty as this way of looking at it in places that are not always treasured or not always seen as quintessentially um, important, but also how he would nerd out on a specific type of Victorian lace or um, mourning in the Victorian era and colors and cuts and the way that um, sometimes even just how he would look at the darkness of his soul and find beautiful ways to share that. And you left that show really feeling like if you had experienced something of the man that was Lee. And I remembered coming out to that show, and I must have stayed in that show, I think, for two, no, almost three and a half hours. I was that person in in the exhibit that, you know, as you're kind of moving along that conveyor belt of moving people, you know, to go from... Uh, garment to garment, to room to room, installation to installation, I would just park myself in front of one garment and I would not leave until I understood every seam, every bead, every cut, every angle. And I remember leaving the show after those few hours I spent it and I sat on the steps of the Met. I was so overwhelmed and I buried my face in my hands just off to the corner and I sobbed. And it was this uncontrollable sob and I could not articulate it actually for some until years afterwards where I understood at that moment, it was so many layers. Yes, it was the sadness of Lee's passing. Yes, it was the fact that such a great talent was misunderstood and experienced so much pain. But I think in that moment, I also realized that there was something within me that shifted where there were my own struggle with trying to find a place within um, the world where I can share my thoughts and share my perspectives, but not having a medium to do so, where I knew that the commercial world and fashion merchandising was not mine. I wanted to do more. I wanted to take the conversations deeper while being frustrated with how slow institutions worked and not also seeing myself as somebody who wanted to be a professor or teach. And knowing that also I wasn't a designer, I wasn't a stylist. Uh, What is it that I can do to share my own experiences? And I think in that moment at the Met, when I just had this outpouring of emotion, is that it was as much for Lee as it was for myself, because I think what Andrew Bolton and his team did was in that experience connect for me quite powerfully the experiences that I have been having, which was connecting the merchandising world, the event planning world, and the curation world in a very, very powerful moment. Because one of the reasons why Savage Beauty broke all records that it did in 2011 was that Andrew worked with Lee's team. So he worked with um, his stylist. He worked with the person who does the runway setups for the shows. He worked with the person who does the lighting. He works with the person who did the music. So basically, these folks who really guarded Lee's memory and guarded his creativity collaborated with the institution of the Met and with Andrew Bolton to create the experience of the shows in a way that you were going to McQueen runway show. And it's well documented that, and Lee spoke about that himself, where you he used his shows as this way of letting you into his mind, into his psyche, letting you into his heart. And sometimes 
because he oftentimes wanted people to feel shocked or disgusted or to feel sad or happy or joyful or excitement. Many times the clothing of themselves were lost in that because it was all about the experience. And what the McQueen, sh the Savage Beauty show that that was so powerful was was bring together the experience of feeling something while also allowing you to focus on the the details of the clothes. And Andrews and Lee's team in bringing this immersive environment together was a huge part of that. Also, um, Andrew also had the brilliant idea to use McQueen's Lee's words as didactic elements, as uh, words on the walls and on labels to really guide you through. So, for example, one of the first in the first room that looked at his foundational time on tailoring, uh, there was a quote from Lee that said that he loved to cut clothes in the round on an S so that depending on when you walked, walked around the person in 360, the garment always sits perfectly on the body. And I remember reading that thinking, oh my goodness, I must find a way to look at every garment in this show from a 360 angle if I can. And because Andrew used the words of Lee, by the time you left the show, like I was saying, like you really felt like you, you had kind of had a conversation with him. That, he, that it was his words that were guiding you through. And I've since adopted that way of thinking into my own spiritual practice where I worked on a show at York University uh, two years ago called Reframing Gender that looked at the ways in which historic ways of categorizing gender through clothing have really influenced the way that we see the gendered body and that we also see identity. And I juxtaposed archetypes of clothing, whether it be a beautiful peptobismal pink frilly dress from the 50s, or whether it be an antique army overcoat from, I think it was 19, 1914, all from the York Historic Collection at the theater department. I juxtaposed those with interviews with queer, black, indigenous people of color, who in their very identities completely and totally blows and challenges and subverts those archetypes of gender. And instead of writing didactics on the walls, instead of explaining things, I had the interviews or the filmed interviews with these amazing people speak directly to audience members as a way of taking them through their own day-to-day -day experience in the ways that their experience of dressing themselves every day to counteract the intersectional systemic isms that they face in their life whether it be racism, transphobia, misogyny, Islamophobia, all of the different things that crush their experience and the way that dressing for them is this way of armor, this way of personal joy, their filmed interviews were the didactic that responded to these archetypes of gendered clothing. And that's something that I, you know, took hold in my practice from experiencing the McQueen show. And I think, like I said, after the McQueen show, it was that moment that I finally saw all the worlds, all my worlds, overlapping with stage sets, with atmospheric lighting, with, and now I can go back and unpack even more so that emotional experience to me and how each room in that exhibition was set up as a different uh, time in, in Lee's creative career and, or a specific show, even down to the music that was used. So it was this way of just blending all the worlds together. And that's something that I hope that, you know, as I continue to put on more shows, that when folks come through, they are first and foremost engaged, they're immersed, and um, 
and they can just start to interact with the experience they're having. And hopefully there is some learning, there is some transformative development that will happen throughout that experience. just shared with me, you mentioned fashion as armor. And I know in some of your other work, you touched on, I guess, the work of Andre Leon Talley. And I know in others' writings of him, they've often described him as the only one in the room and who himself has described fashion often playing as armor for himself as a black queer man at Vogue in the fashion industry over the last several decades. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work on Andre Leon Talley? That's a very interesting connection that you've just made, an important one in terms of mentioning Andre and Armour, because it connects so much to the Reframing Gender show that I did at York, where I really, I think, from that show really understood something that I had instinctively known as someone who's also queer and also a person of color, how the way that you dress in the different spaces that you are comes from this way of going through life with an intersectional identity, but connecting it even more so to Andre and the way that Andre Leon Talley's life in Vogue, as he's just so wisely summarized, has been an example to many folks like myself. Um, you're mentioning the uh, Hilton Alls article from The New Yorker from 94, where Andre really has been the only one in fashion as Black as flamboyant from the South, Andre has taken up a space that has not existed previously until him and has since opened the doors for others to come. And it's understanding the way that he works and understanding what goes, what went into allowing him to make decisions that he made, I think, specifically with his Vogue work. Because from my master's thesis at York, I analyzed the all 400 plus articles of his writing in Vogue from 1980, I'm going to get this wrong, from 1988 until 2000, I believe, 13, with gaps in between. I followed his career in articles from Women's Wear Daily over to his stint at Vanity Fair and then Vogue and then different places. But it was this amazing way of looking at the way that, and again, from a curatorial lens, Andre brought his experience to bear, both as a black man growing up, raised by his grandmother, who was a cleaning lady, Benny Davis Francis, in the South, in the Jim Crow South, which is very important to note. And from him learning her way of style, her way of dignity, her way of putting herself together as a black marginalized woman in the South under segregation, and then connecting that experience to the other person who has been formative in his life, which is the legendary Vogue editor, Deanna Vreeland, who's someone of immense privilege, but also someone who put herself together in the same way that his grandmother did, in the same way, with the same sense of polish and style and belief in carrying oneself through the, in the world in a way that represented your best self. And what Andre did so powerfully in his articles, and I think this is something that I'm trying to look at in my own work, is bringing all these references together in a way that speaks to how historically things are linked, how I marginalized identities are put down, but yet how they rise above through style, through clothing, through taking up space. 
And that is a through thread that I think fascinated me so much about his work when I started, when I read it many decades ago as a young as a young person in Georgetown, Guyana, and then finally getting to study the full breadth of his work uh, two years ago for my master's. That thread, I think, is something that even connects to the show that I'm working on now at Queen's that looks at uh, connections between cotton enslavement and the way the world is now. Can you tell me a bit about your upcoming exhibition at the Agnes Gallery? When did you start putting together the different pieces of the exhibit in your head? Absolutely. Uh, the show is called History is Really Black or White, and it is at the Agnes Etherington Art Center at Queen's University. And the exhibition interrogates cotton garments from the Queen's Collection of Canadian Dress, which is held at the Agnes, which is an amazing resource of vintage and antique garments that have been donated to the gallery. And the exhibition interrogates these garments through a combination of archival research and scientific analysis and connects the raw material in these garments to resource extraction, to indigenous displacement, to the enslaved labor of black Africans and then black Americans, and then connects through this supply chain into the undergoing railroad into Canada. It's this way, and to do that, we are engaging contemporary art, historic fashion, as I mentioned, as well as contemporary fashion or contemporary garments that have been created by three artists, uh, Karen Jones, who is based here in Vancouver, Gordon Shadrach, a portrait artist in Toronto, and Damien Joel, who is a, a fashion griot, a researcher and a creator who lives in New York. And through the three artists, they are demonstrating, in a sense, the manner in which the the burden of colonial history that has brought the Agnes garments, the cotton garments into being, has really entwined itself in every single aspect of life as we know it today. For example, Gordon and Damien will look at the way that the ongoing legacies of repression that were that really took hold during this time in relation to the global cotton supply chain and the way of seeing the black body as enslaved, as seeing the black body something to be controlled has not left our contemporary hold. And Karen is creating a installation for us, which is a site-specific work that will look at the way that cotton and hair and blackness cannot be separated from each other. And what I'm hoping that the work will do and what I'm hoping that the exhibition will do will be to show us the the ways in which different parts of life have all co-joined to create identities, experiences, people, groups, lands, and the way that it exists all today. Um, we cannot speak of cotton and history without speaking about enslavement. We cannot speak about beautiful, gorgeously made garments. And as a fashion historian, I do appreciate the construction and the making of garments without, however, looking at the historic ways of linking that to incarceration and the way that these frameworks are all connected together. It's an ambitious project. But I really hope that, as with everything I do and with the work that I find, uh, that I deeply connect with in others, I really hope that people come and see themselves reflected. You talk about policing black bodies 
and also your hopes for people to see themselves reflected in the exhibitions you put together. As I was sort of preparing for this interview, it kind of reminded me just the subject matter and the general themes that I was hoping we talked about. It reminded me of a quote from Robin Maynard's book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to, P- to Present. Um, and in the book, she there's a quotation where she talks about how the generalized erasure of the black experience in Canada from the public realm, including primary, secondary, and post-secondary education, combined with the Canadian proclivity for ignoring racial disparities. In what ways do Maynard's words manifest in your experiences, rather, of academic and curatorial spaces? That's an excellent quote. And um, Maynard's work is very um, influential to my own practice and my own crafting of theoretical frameworks, not just to bring this exhibition to life, but also in the motivation behind me wanting to put this exhibition together. So usually in fashion histories, the study of fashion, there is the historical research, there is fashion studies that is seen as something that is more contemporary, that is something that engages with social and ecological issues, and then there's the historical study that more looks at the materiality of a garment, its construction, the raw elements that go into making it, and the systems that put that together. But often, those things are very siloed. And for someone like me, whose very identity has come to be from the cotton trade in terms of the way that people groups were moved across the world and settled in South America, which were whom are my ancestors, who then through the line brought me into being, I know that looking at a cotton garment from the 1800s, we can just talk about how beautifully made the laces and how wonderful the corset is constructed. Those are very valid things. We must also talk about the system of oppression that brought this into being. And this is where Maynard's quote to me is so inspirational, but also something that I experience daily because we cannot talk about these beautiful cotton garments without talking about incarceration. The show is going up in Kingston at the Agnes Etherington Art Center. Kingston, of course, is a beautiful city with um, wonderful Victorian architecture. It's by the water. It's quite quaint. Kingston also has a very large penitentiary that's disproportionately filled with black, indigenous, and other people of color who, through the system of policing the BIPOC body, have been placed in places as a system of control. Now, you may think, okay, that's a rich statement that these cotton garments from the 1800s are linked to incarceration. But I'm hoping that the show will show how that has come into being because to be able to grow the raw cotton in the 1800s, you had to find available land. And of course, available, we're using in quotation marks because you're looking at the British and the French and other colonial powers taking land from indigenous nations in North America, specifically the American South displacing indigenous nations, enacting genocide, then forcibly moving black Africans across the ocean, settling them there, raping the ground from its way of birthing multiple species of flora and creating monoculture where you're only growing one crop. And then you are, what you're then doing in that process, and we can look at industrialization and the mills and so on, but what I'm trying to say here is that This way of looking at land as something that has a commercial bent, that can be used as a commercial tool for economic gain, 
this way of the white colonial power looking at the other body as the black indigenous person of color body as an economic tool of labor as a means to get something done, as something that's in the way of progress. These ways of thinking really take hold on a systemic level because now they become tied to a capitalist project of the wider global cotton supply chain of moving this raw material from the American South, which we will be determining through isotope analysis in conjunction with the Queen's Isotope Lab. And in that sense, um, Anne Mugren, who's the amazing conservator working on this project, is spearheading that part. But we're looking at the way that by showing that the cotton is coming from the American South and then looking at the mills in England and then looking at then the wider supply chain into Canada, we're showing how this way of connecting the systems and the business of cotton was connected to ways of seeing the body and ways of seeing identity And these things become entrenched systemically and from a capitalist perspective during this time. It had started before, but it really takes hold now. And that way of thinking has not left our society to now. To be able to speak to these garments, we also need to show how the legacies and the lineage of thinking have affected the ways that we see other identities now. Um, The exhibition will chart three major focuses. One will be the raw cotton. And again, looking through the isotope analysis of ways that we can track where it's coming from the American South and the global supply chain. That first gallery would also have Karen Jones's installation. Again, looking at the cotton garments and enslavement and hair and identities. The second garment, the second room will look at who's working on the cotton, who's picking the cotton, in disrespect, um, Damien Joel's amazing fashion story, Songs of the Gullah, working with the Gullah Geechee Nation, as he did, will share the humanity of who was working to pick the cotton. And in the third gallery, we'll bring this into Canada by tracing through the Underground Railroad, looking at archival tintypes from Ontario archives, as well as other documentation, will show that, in fact, Canada and its diversity and the ways that many black folk have ended up here, specifically the 1800s, came as a result of the cotton trade and enslavement and reactions to that. And Gordon Shadrach's work and these portraits of black men will show that the way that perceptions of blackness really took hold during that time and have not shifted, which leads us completely to incarceration. So... I really hope that everyone walking through this show, regardless of their identity and their background, can really understand the ways that the garments we wear have powerful impacts. And we're having many important conversations now, you know, as contemporary consumers of clothing, where the fabric is coming from, who's involved in making it, whether they're paid a fair wage, whether the process of bringing these garments into being is polluting the environment and advancing climate change. And these are questions and considerations that were very much a part of bringing those cotton garments into the Agnes's collection, very much a part of their own object biography. And I hope that we can look historically, but also look at our lives now and how we live now and how we can make different choices, but also how the way that we think is very much historically linked. Jason, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk with you about your work. As we wrap up today's episode, I just want to remind our listeners that History is Rarely Black or White is on at the Agnes Etherington Arts Center from November 27, 2021 
to March 20th, 2022 in Kingston, Ontario. More info about the exhibition can be found in our show notes. Rodney, I just would like to express my sincere gratitude for this opportunity to be here. I'm extremely humbled to work alongside you and I believe the conversations you're having on this podcast and just the post- the gracious posture with which you hold space and the rigorous research that you do to make your guests feel comfortable, but also being knowledgeable on many subject matters really has, I think, impacted my own work and my own ways of holding space. And I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I also really want to thank Robin Chantry, who is a dear friend of both of us, who is the brilliant designer who's working on histories really black or white. And I just want to thank them for connecting us and for everything they brought to the project. And I hope that this podcast can continue to be a place where people see themselves revealed. Vinaka. Take care, everyone. Until next time. Patchworks is a podcast brought to you with the support of Green College at the University of British Columbia. Music composed and arranged by Judith Valerie Engel and Gabriel Lanstead. Audio editing by Olivia Wheeler. Thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again. Thank you.